Hello and welcome to Smart Businesses Do This, where today we're going to be talking about the art of the exit and how to make sure you get the highest amount of money when you sell your business. You are listening to Smart Businesses Do This, the podcast show for freelancers, side hustlers, and upcoming small business owners who want to transform their current business or business idea into a company that is built to succeed, simple to run, and gives you the freedom to live your life on your own terms. I'm your host, Adam Lyons. Let's get started. I am joined by two incredible experts that I'm going to get to introduce themselves to you momentarily. Uh, but before that, I just want to remind you that today's episode is sponsored by workingvacation.com, where you can spend seven days with me and my team as we mastermind and help you grow your business in seven days more than you have in the last six months. That sounds crazy, but check out workingvacation.com to learn how to do that. All right. So um, why don't we start at Yelitsa? Do you want to tell them a little bit about yourself and why do you know so much about selling businesses? Yeah. So my name is Jelik Samora. I'm located in Dallas, Texas. When I started in, in business, I started with a construction company and I think I have the same epiphany that everyone had. It's like I left my nine to five to work 24 seven and there's gotta be something better for me out there. So when I found that I was basically burned out and I'm like, I need to get out of this. Now I was like, okay, um, I'm going to start thinking about what other businesses can I buy so I can lift this one like to the side and I can start focusing on acquiring something that is going to give me my life back. And so basically when I started the quest of there's got to be something better for me, shiny object syndrome, I was like, well, I actually don't have a company to sell. I don't have a business. I just have a high paying job. And so that's basically what started the whole M&A and exiting businesses and buying businesses. It came from the fact that I was so burned out and that I had a high paying job that, that I thought it was a company that led me to, there's something better out there and there is actually businesses that make sense. So if you're in the buyer's side, you want to get a deal. And if you're on the seller's side, you want to get the most money out of it. So that's basically my story in a nutshell. And what I love about it, uh, for those of you guys that don't know, Yelitsa is one of the coaches inside a major merger acquisition program. She literally trains thousands of people how to buy and sell businesses every single year, which is just incredible. Um, and then Craig. Hi, I'm Craig Thompson. I'm a patent attorney, but it started uh, with my love of technology. Uh, I'm a physics and math uh, nerd. So I first became an electrical engineer for 10 years and I designed circuits for 10 years. And then I started to uh, pursuing my passion for business is, uh, you know, I grew up, uh, my dad was an entrepreneur. He was a pharmacist, but he was an entrepreneurial pharmacist, believe it or not there. He was one. And, um, so I, I grew up in that, in that, in that. And so I started to go to uh, business school at night, just on my own as working full-time as an electrical engineer. And I took a business law class. And so I fell in love with patent law and the next semester I was in law school. And for the last 23 years, I've been doing patent law exclusively for, uh, we patent, uh, electrical, mechanical software, medical devices. And so that's what we've been doing. And for the last six years in a row, every year talking about exits, we've had either a seven figure licensing deal, a client who's had a seven figure licensing deal or, or an eight figure exit. And, using the patents based on, in part, 
not not wholly, but a large part uh, to the patents. And so it's not applicable to everybody. Now, I, I did do some research and uh, the patent office, the US patent office did a, a study about four years ago. And in 2019, the amount of GDP in the United States that was based on utility patents, those are the patents that you usually think of as opposed to design patents, was $4.43 trillion is in support of that much GDP. So patents are not an insignificant niche in the US economy. And what was shocking to me was, because that's what I really focus on, I'm like one of the leading experts in the country in, in doing those kind of patents, but even bigger, 4.46 trillion was design patents, stuff like, you know, design patents, so the, like the shape of the Harley Davidson gas can and muffler and stuff like that. So, and, and, the, and the tread design in the bottom of your shoe, big stuff. So um, when you exit IP and trademarks is even bigger than patents. When you exit, IP can be, for some of you, a very large part, even if it's just trademarks, but uh, patents as well. So, um, oh, you're good. You can keep that one. <clears throat> so, um, I'll give you guys an example. I buy and sell businesses often. Actually, uh, in the last four years, every eight weeks, I have either bought or sold a business for myself. Um, and even more, if we consider the ones I've consulted. In fact, I've consulted for over 2,200 deals in the last four years. So it's a significant amount of deals. And uh, I want to give you guys an example of why um, trademark IP and patents are so important with an actual deal that I was looking at about a week ago. So a week ago, I found a deal. It was an opportunity to buy a bar in, uh, in Las Vegas. And uh, the opportunity to buy the bar, the bar was available for $1.2 million. This is a real deal. Um, it, it got put on my desk as, hey, I think this is something you might be interested in. And for a moment, I was considering it until I looked into it a little bit further. You see, the bar has actually been closed for three months. Now, if if you don't understand why that's a big deal, I'll make it really simple. I'm buying the business, I'm not buying the building. So I wouldn't ever own the building. I'm essentially buying the right to rent the building. So once we look at this a little bit further, so there's no staff available anymore because all the staff have moved on and done something else. So there's no staff and no customers have been there for three months. So there's no customers. So what am I paying $1.2 million for? What I was paying $1.2 million for was the shell of the business, essentially the LLC, which you can get for $500 on LegalZoom. And... Um, and their, their standard operating procedures, which clearly weren't good enough because it closed down three months ago, the right to rent the building, which had rent of $16,000 a month, and the mailing list of customers. In essence, I was paying $1.2 million for a failed shell, no processes, no staff, no guaranteed revenue. And uh, what initially looked like an amazing deal looked like the absolute turd of a business that it truly was. Um, however, um, if they had had a patent, a trademark that was worth something, that $1.2 million would have been worth it. Because now I would own something that nobody else could get. 
but there was nothing stopping me just duplicating everything. And so I said to the guy, look, I'll be honest with you. Um, I really want this. It's good, but not at 1.2 million. This is ridiculous. I was like, I'll just wait until they want to rent the building. Call me and I'll rent the building and I'll set up my own company for 500 bucks and I'll buy the license they have for $20,000. And for, I think, 100 grand, I'm good to go, which is a lot better than 1.2 million. The difference would have been the trademark or pattern, which is what I was interested in. I was like, do you have a brand? Is this a brand that people care about that I can not only open here, but I can open in other areas and it would mean something. So the reason that I've made sure that we have Craig here is to show you that when you're exiting a business, the intellectual property, the trademarks that you have are going to be a huge component of what it's worth. Now, um, so many people don't understand that when it comes to selling a business, um, it's not about how much money you receive. It's actually about how much money you get to keep. And the biggest thing, and this happened to a very good friend of mine, literally just a couple of months ago, he sold his business. And by the time he had paid out everyone he had to pay out and done everything with the money that he got, the tax bill ended up being larger than the amount of money he received. And it was so bad, they put a lien on his house and his house that was fully paid off, he had to remortgage. And this is scary that something like that can happen. But if you think about it, it wouldn't be that difficult if you've essentially been um, you know, selling your business for an amount of money that you think is really good, but you've promised a lot of employees a percentage of that money and, and you start doing all the payouts and you haven't prepared yourself for a very large tax bill. And then when the tax bill does hit, you're like, wait a minute, my share of what I'm getting is not as big as the tax. You can't really go back to everyone and be like, oh, by the way, guys, you also have to pay this tax bill. Um, they're going to have to pay taxes on what they receive as well. But this was a huge issue. And it was all because the exit was structured badly. So um, before we get into it, and I, I, I want to hear from you guys as well, but I want to share with you my basic 101, not legal advice, not financial advice, silly story about how you could exit a business. Um, so I learned merchant acquisitions from my mentor in this, which is Roland Frazier. And Roland Frazier has what he calls the rule of price and terms, which I love. The rule of price and terms is very simple. If you dictate the price, I dictate the terms. If you dictate the terms, I dictate the price. And that's how it works. So believe it or not, I actually put an offer in on this business for $1.2 million. Shocking, right? I just told you how it's not worth it, but I was willing to pay $1.2 million. I said, please tell them I would like to offer $1.2 million. I want, uh, actually, and I'll ask you guys, why do you think I was willing to do it? Terms terms. It's a hundred percent based on the terms. I said, I will pay 1.2 million, your exact asking price. No one else is going to give this to you. I'll give it to you, providing it's my terms. And these were my conditions. My terms were, you'll get $1.2 million, but the payments will begin 30 days after I open. I will start paying rent from day one. I will keep all the physical, everything in the store, all the customers. I'll, I'll get all of that. And your payment will be based on 50% of profit every month after the first month until $1.2 million is paid. At any point, if I fail to make a payment or have an unprofitable month, 
you can take back the business off me and I will shut everything down and you know we'll call it quits. This is a very, very good deal for them. Like a very, very good deal. Because essentially it's no risk. The business gets picked back up. They don't have to do anything. They just receive a check every single month. And if at any point I fail, I've already done the legwork of the business and they've absolutely got it. I just have to make sure it runs profitable, which is fine. Because worst comes to worst, I'll just inject my own money to keep it profitable, which is my safety net. Because at any point, I've just got to say, hey, we made some profit. Here's where it is. Um, so it was a really no-brainer choice for me. Sure, I'm going to owe $1.2 million, but I'm going to pay that out of profit that I'm not currently getting anyway. So I'm just sharing 50% of a pie that I don't have today. So this made a lot of sense in the rule of price and terms. And I tell a lot of people, when you're selling your business, as a sell, as the person who's selling, don't think, how am I going to receive a ton of money today? Think, how am I going to receive the largest amount of money over time? Now, again, this gets really interesting from a taxation point of view as well, because there isn't a single large payday. You're not going to pay uh, a penalty on taxation because in this one year, you received a lump sum of cash. You're receiving money over a period of time. And if the person who's buying the business off you fails to make a payment, you get to sell the business again for the full value. So I have actually seen one of my clients put a business up for sale, sell it on payments over time, received 50% of the money over a period of a year or so. The person then couldn't run the business anymore. So they got their business back. They went into the business for two months to tidy it up and get it ready again, sold it again. The next person came in and bought a third of it and then couldn't do it. So they came in again for a couple of months and fixed it again, and the last time they got a cash buyer, they sold it for almost 200% of what they would have originally got over a period of two and a half years. This is massively better than it could have been any other way. So I just wanted to make sure that I shared that with you guys and gave it to you as an understanding of if you don't need the cash today and you want to keep as much of it as possible, really lean into this idea of terms. And, and I'm sorry, normally I don't start these by going off on a rant on myself, but this is my subject and I know it really well. So I was like, let me give you guys uh, an understanding of it. But having said that, Delita, maybe you could share something, um, some kind of exit that you've advised on or that you've seen or you've done, and maybe some of the learning lessons in there and the pitfalls of selling a business. Yeah. So, so the one thing that most business owners uh, think about their businesses is that they, it's their identity. And it's because it is my identity. I must control everything. And that is one of the worst mistakes any business owner can think of or can do. Why? Because there's only the, 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 one, the first thing that I always tell my people, like the people that I consult with or the people that when I buy a business or when I'm trying to help them exit is... Your business right now, if you are, as a business owner, a par in some way, shape, or form, if you make decisions, if you're controlling something, if you're doing something for the business, in, let's say, medium size, and, and, you know, on a medium, you're getting maybe 2.5 multiple when you try to exit if you are controlling some sort of the business. Let's say you don't do anything. Profit stays the same. Sales stays the same but you remove yourself and you make your business a professionally managed machine, you're going to double your net worth and you're going to double the amount of multiple that you're going to get in your business. So from 2.5 to 4, 4.5 or 5, just by removing yourself 
from the day-to-day operations and from removing yourself from the business to the point where the business is going to be self-manageable and self-sufficient. So that is the one thing that I would say that I've been advising people. It's simple. It is easier said than done, but it's the first thing that I would say, if you are a business owner, if you're thinking about removing yourself from the business or exiting your your company, I would say, start from removing yourself. How do you think about removing yourself? I would focus on the three components of any business. It doesn't matter if you're a home services company, a marketing business, or any other tech, SaaS, there are three components on any company. The growth engine, which is like the things that bring the leads on board. The fulfillment engine, and then the innovation. Think about those three components and just map it out and say, where am I needed in each one of those components? And the things that you're touching in those things, growth, sales, marketing, leads coming in, if you're touching anything like that, get yourself out. Fulfillment, what happens when a leads come in? If I'm touching anything on the operations side, I got to get out. And then innovation, if you're the only one thinking about new things, new profit centers, new uh, 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 opportunities for you to sell, you got to remove yourself. So I would say just focus on that. And that only will help you get double of what you were thinking about when you were uh, trying to sell your company. And if you're going to buy it, just buy a fixer upper so you guys can come in and implement the same things that you're learning here today. I love it. Awesome. Um, how about Craig? One of the exits that you've worked on where you've seen that they've just made a mistake or, or something that you saw there? Well, if I can share a, a strategy that Please. a lot of people don't know about that I... I, I Really, uh, every time I've shared this, I've got a really uh, good reaction. Um, and it seems like nobody really knows this, but it's not that it's not that complicated. So I think you'll you'll be able to follow it. It's nothing really uh, amazing legally, but what it involves is small, expensive things come in s- small packages, right? So ladies know this, right? It's small things uh, can be very expensive. And land developers, talk about real estate. Um, land developers know this. When you buy, land developers will buy a large chunk of raw land. And what do they do with it? Hold it. They cut it up into small parcels and sell it for a lot more per acre, mm-hmm. right? So you can get... Um, you can do the same thing with intellectual property as you can with real property. There's a lot of things that you can do with real property that that we feel comfortable with and, and, and intuitively understand that also apply to intellectual property. Intellectual property is just intangible. Intellectual property is, is patents, trademarks, copyrights, and trade secrets. That's intellectual property. So let me just speak to patents, for example, in the exit context. So if, if you... If when we have a client who has a business that they're thinking about selling in three to five years, um, and they want to get the most for that business at their exit, they know that um, maybe they have some software that they have developed for some sort of medical, you know, some sort of SaaS company um, that does, you know, some service to the the medical industry, for example. We have a number of clients that do things like that. And what what they can do is figure out if they have something patentable. Not everything is patentable. Well, 30% of the time when people come to us, we sell them, we tell them, put your wallet away. You don't have anything to patent. And, And there's, let me just 
give you two reasons why we tell people 30% of the time you can't patent something. And then I'll tell you why you should on, uh, when you think you shouldn't. The 30% of the time, it's for two reasons. Either the idea itself isn't patentable, or even if it is patentable, there's not enough business value there. The, it, 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 even if they could get a patent on it, they can't make enough ROI on it to, to justify getting a patent. And I'll tell you, my personal rule that I've used for many years, and I've never heard anybody else use this, which is you need to have a, a not a most likely business case, not, not, not a most not pie in the sky optimistic case, or not a most pessimistic conservative case, but a most likely business scenario. In a, in a most likely business scenario, how much uh, profit are you likely to make in the next three to four years if you could protect this idea with a patent? And if that number, if you add up, you know, like 500,000 profit the first year, you know, the second year, third year, fourth year, if that number total adds up to more than two or two and a half million dollars, then it makes total sense to get a patent. If it's below that number, I'd say don't get a patent. Okay, so there has to be two reasons. You have to, it has to be a patentable idea, has to be new and non-obvious. And secondly, it has to be business justified. Okay, and if those two criteria are true, then you, it's very likely that you should get a patent. Um, so that's the filter. And if you want to know more about the details, I do have a resource. I'm not trying to sell a book, but when people have this issue and you know that if it's you, it's right here. It's the number one bestseller on Amazon. You can also get it at patentoffense.com. It was a number one bestseller in the um, legal and business departments in on Amazon. So uh, it's all five-star reviewed. We've been using that process as seven steps. Ask the patent question. Ask the business, the four business questions, the three patent questions. And that's how you can tell if you should even consider talking to a patent attorney. So read that book before you go to a patent attorney and spend hundreds of dollars asking them that question. Um, we can, you know, that's, that's the place to go. You can get it for at patentoffense.com for $7 digitally. So something that I want to check. So patent offense uh, is the name of it. Um, everyone here in the, that's watching this live, raise your hand if you currently have a patent um, on your business. Okay. So that's one, 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 two, ish two half hands we'll count that as two hands okay so i mean that's like 10 percent of the room um in your opinion how much can a patent increase the exit of a business um in as a percentage or multiple um i i think that when you do it correctly i mean there's a lot most patents let me say put it this way most patents don't never generate a dime of revenue that's the honest truth. That's why I wrote that book, because I was pissed off, honestly, because I was working for the top companies in the world, Apple, Google, Intel, Microsoft, Gillette, Duracell, Honeywell, Xilinx, um, Applied Materials, all the top 500, Fortune 500 tech companies at the number one patent firm in the country. And I just saw them all doing it wrong. And that's when I wrote that book, when I started working with entrepreneurs. And I've worked with thousands of inventors on four continents over the last 23 years. And most patents are really not that valuable. But when you follow this process, this process will help you filter out the bad ideas that shouldn't get patented. And you don't need 10,000 patents. An entrepreneur needs one. And that one patent, if it can protect, 
I say minimum of two and a half million dollars of profit. And I, I go through a very simple ROI calculator I'm doing in a workshop um, that we can, you know, invite you to. It's offer code Adam. If you want to come to inventiontoexit.com, uh, you, you can get a free ticket because if you're listening to Adam's podcast, we, you know, you're, you're uh, the kind of person we want you to, to have access to that. So you. you get a free ticket uh, for, to come to that workshop and learn how to calculate this for yourself. It's very easy. We'll give you the spreadsheet and then teach you how to use it. You'll, it, it's, but it'll save you thousands of dollars. But the, but the answer to the question, the value is minimum two and a half million dollars or zero. Don't spend, a lot of people spend a lot of money on patents when they shouldn't. And they also don't spend money on patents when they should. And I'll, if I could just spend, I'll, I'll talk about that in Please. a minute. A minute. Yeah. Very, very quickly, I do, I do this uh, talk about the 10 myths that engineers and other really intelligent people believe about patents. And there's 10 things that, that are out there that a lot, most people believe that are absolutely, I'm a contrarian, absolutely wrong. And, um, they, they lead you to bad decisions that reduce your, the value, they reduce your pocketbook. And the one that I'd like to tell everybody here is a lot of people are so sophisticated and so experienced in their area. To them, everything, the little improvements that they've made along in their career, and they just, they've, they've solved all these little problems and they've made improvements and they think, no, that's all obvious. They just, to them, it's obvious because they're so expert. I mean, they're the world's leading experts in your area. And they think, well, you can't patent any of that because, I don't know, you know, it's, it's obvious. Well, that's not the legal standard. And I can't tell you how many really, really smart people engineers, but also business people and just entrepreneurs have talked themselves out of getting patents that would have really helped them. And then when they, they later come to realize, if I get a chance to show them what, what patents are really about, they realize that they really messed up. Not They, they missed a big opportunity because they thought, oh, that's so easy. I, you know, because they're like the world's leading expert, they're the top five people in the world in that area. They think it's they think it's not patentable, and it maybe it is, and maybe it isn't. But a lot of times it is, and they're wrong, and they 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 sort of discount it. So um, that's the other side of the coin. So we talk people out of getting patents, and sometimes people talk themselves out of getting patents when they shouldn't. So it's really hard to figure out what you should patent, what you shouldn't patent. We do battle with the bureaucrats at the patent office every day for the last 23 years. I've been doing this. I know how they think. I know what they're looking for. I know how to tell if something's patentable or not with a little bit of due diligence. So um, you really should talk to somebody who, who has that kind of background before you make that decision on your own. And um, it, anyway, so hopefully that helps you. And to, to increase the value of your business with a patent that's worth at least $2.5 million or potentially a lot more. So this is, um, this is something that, um, that I, I want to let you guys know. When it comes to selling a business, the time to prepare to sell is actually today. The reason for that is, uh, as Yelita mentioned earlier, your business is not you. Your business is its own entity. It gets its own tax EIN number, which is essentially a social security number, because in many ways, in the eyes of the law, it is its own entity, not a, a living, breathing human being, but it is its own legal entity, just like a human is a legal entity. 
When you think of your business as you, your effort, and I know this because you know I had somebody the other day. He's like, someone tried to tell my business, sell, buy my business. I told him it's a billion dollars because that's what I'm worth. And I was like, what do you mean that's what you're worth? That's it's a business. It's not you. It's its own thing. But that's what happens when people add their um, their personal energy into the business. They get all these insane ideas about what it is. As a business owner. It's almost better that we remove the phrase business owner and you think of yourself as a business creator. You don't own the business. You create it. It owns itself. It just so happens that you're in charge of it and making the human decisions for it. When you think of yourself as a business creator, it doesn't, you don't think of it as something you own. And look, I'm a parent. I got five kids. I'm telling you right now, I don't think of myself as owning five children. I created five children, but just like a business, I can't make decisions on behalf of my children. I can guide them. I can make some decisions for them, but as they get older, they make their own decisions. And that's how it is, whether I like it or not they're going to make their own decisions. And my relationship with my children is better when I think of them as their own entity that makes their own decisions and I'm there to advise. Likewise, your business is better when you think of yourself as a business creator, not a business owner, and you're there to advise. And the business should be able to exist in its own entity. And just like a child, should be able to look after itself, care for itself, do everything it can for itself. And you're just the advisor. When you build a business this way, it is far better in terms of its ability to generate money on the exit. So for example, one of the businesses that we're looking at right now is a $13 million um, transportation storage facility in Illinois. And when this got put across my desk, they sent me the financials from 2017 to 2022, but 2022 was missing. And um, I, I'm part of a, an email chain of a, a lawyer that's involved in the purchase, a financier, uh, the COO, and myself, who's the consultant. And everyone instantly says, hey, Adam, what do you think? And I was really shocked that the first response was, Adam, I'm terribly sorry we don't have the financials for 2022. We'll get them to you before somebody insulted me by asking me my opinion. Because it doesn't matter about any of the other financials. What happened last year? In fact, the fact that's missing is scary. Like, what do you mean you don't have 20? We're 2023. I want to see 2022's financials. The lawyer missed it. The financer missed it. The, the business owner missed it. The COO, everyone missed it except me. And I was so upset that it had to get to me. At first of all, I totally justified my fee of 120 grand. And I was like, I'm definitely worth it. Um, but the fact that that basic point was missing is crazy. But on the flip side, you need to know that your final year of business before the sale is the most important one. You can't decide in June to sell your business in December. That's really bad. If you're going to sell your business, they are going to consider an entire year of financials from January to December. So if you decide to sell it in June, you're not going to sell it until after, not the first December, but the one after that, because you want one clear year of financials. And the value of the business, the valuation is going to be based on the profit of that final year. They're going to look at the other years to see if there's an anomaly. Obviously, there's going to be an anomaly because you're smart and you've listened to me and you've boosted the profit in that final year by going on less work vacations. But the whole point is that final year, you want that profit to be as high as possible. In the negotiation, when you go to sell it, they're going to say to you, hey, why was this year so profitable and the others weren't? And your response is very simple. Because I knew I was going to sell it at the end of this year. And I wanted to demonstrate how profitable the business could be if I wasn't putting my money into growth.
Up until this final year, I have reinvested all the money in education, information, systems, people, and I've grown the business. Mm -hmm. In the final year, I decided to not try and grow it and instead to just maintain it. Please note that even in the year where we weren't actively trying to grow, the business grew by 7%, 8%, whatever it was, organically. But that was based on the engine that is built into the business. The profitability is 3x what it's been in the previous years because this is what it's capable of being if you just let it grow slowly as a cash generating system. This is what a buyer wants to hear. This is what they want to see. When you add into that and say, and we own the following IP, that means no one can copycat this. This will generate money like this. And as long as you sustain it and do it, this is reliable, predictable, and this is what it's going to be. This is where you're going to get the maximum income. In addition, you need to not have a role in the company. What you really want to do is in about a year and a half before you sell it, hire your replacement who does everything for you and is on a salary. And you are the advisor to that person. Now, this to me is where the role of president, vice president, and CEO come in. If you've been an acting CEO, now is the time to hire a CEO and move yourself to president or vice versa, hire a president, stay as acting CEO for a while, and then, and then tell them they can hire their choice of CEO when they come in. But that cost is going to have to be calculated. But to me, this is the best role of president where you move from CEO to president. And when you're selling the company, they're not buying a CEO position. They're buying the president position, which I would probably standardize as a quarterly meeting to check in with the CEO and to make sure everything's going where it's supposed to be. In addition, you're going to want KPIs, key performance indicators at each point in the business. For me, a business is going to have six departments. It's going to have CEO, COO, CSO, CFO, CMO, and CTO, which is technical, marketing, operational, finances, sales, execution, um, and hopefully I said technology. I think I said all of them. Uh, if I didn't, you can message me and tell me which one I missed. Um, but the idea is that each of these departments will have key performance indicators that let you know the business is doing what it's supposed to be. So in the financial department, it's going to be making sure the reports are on time, making sure profit and losses where it needs to be in the steady growth. And you can see why and where there are dips with a prediction for the future. In the sales department, it's converting leads. In the marketing department, it's generating leads and coming up with new ideas and so on and so forth across each department. When you have these key performance indicators in place and standard operating procedures to track them and get them checked in, your business is going to value at its highest. Add in patents, trademarks, and intellectual property, and now everything you're doing is in an amazing package to be able to be sold. If we add in what I said at the very beginning, which is the willingness to become an owner-financed business, and I'm going to make this really simple for you. If uh, Yalitza is buying a business from me and I'm after cash, let's say I'm after $10 million. Yalitza's bank account drops by 10 million or Yalitza borrows 10 million from a bank. Either way, Yalitza has lost access to $10 million, whether it's hers or from a bank. If I let her buy it off me for $10 million, I haven't lost anything. I have lost nothing whatsoever because I don't have to borrow the money. I don't have to hand over cash. I've lost nothing. I have lost on opportunity to earn. I have lost on the 10 million in cash she would give me, but she wouldn't give me 10 million in cash. She's going to negotiate and she's going to, well, because I'm giving you 10 million in cash, I'm going to give you 8.5. So I've already lost $1.5 million in a single day. And then I've got taxation that I'm going to have to pay on receiving $8.5 million in a single year. And let's just say that that taxation is likely to be, what percent would you say, Craig, roughly? 
21%, maybe 20 and 30%. Say 30% because the math's easier, right? So I'm going to now lose uh, an extra 30% on that, say, 8.5 million. And now I'm suddenly looking at receiving more like 5 million. That doesn't sound very good. On the other hand, if I say to Elitza, look, to make this easier for you to purchase, as long as you're willing to do 10 million, I'll do owner financing at 5% APR. Um, it needs to be paid off within three years. And now Elitza's no money out of pocket. She's like, oh, great. I can do that right now. I put in a clause to keep me safe if anything goes wrong. And we can even say that the ownership of the pants, to use Craig, doesn't transfer until the final payment is made. So during this entire time, I still own my patents and there's no patent handover or anything. And essentially it's like an own to lease. I am gonna receive the most amount of money. If she fails to pay, I get to sell it again a second time. And she's walking into something that's almost impossible to fail. But the best part, she's still got $10 million available to invest in the business, to make sure it's okay, to fix it, to do whatever's needed, to hire what's what needed. And she's more confident. My earnings over three years is much higher than it would be if I took cash on that first day. And if every business owner understood this and you ran your business this way and you exited this way, you would make more money, you would be in a better, stronger position, and to me is the correct method to exit unless you really, 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 really need cash. Uh, the only other thing I would say is just make sure that the buyer pays the broker if you have a broker or pays any closing costs so no money comes out of your pocket at all either. Um, so that's, that's my learn business quick school. So um, Yelitsa, if you wouldn't mind, um, if there was something that you could share with these guys about an exit from your perspective, I know I just gave them a lot, but what you would add to that, maybe something I've missed or, or maybe your own personal flair, what do you think is important to them? Yeah, so I would say if you're thinking about exiting a business and you have multiple profit centers, I would I would say create different companies, holding companies for those multiple profit centers. So you don't have to sell the whole thing. You can just go ahead and sell maybe the, the clients list that you have. Or I was talking to someone today and he said, I'm in the home services, but I'm also in commercial. So sell the home services space because you have one specific company holding that one. That way you're not going to be left out without a business if you don't want to exit the whole thing. And if you're, you're like, okay, well, I have architectural services in my case that I'm, I'm, I'm in the home services, architectural services, design, interior design, uh, home services, construction and whatnot. So I would just split them all out make them really profitable and sell whatever I want to sell because I'm going to be able to keep whatever I have uh, left in the business. So that, that would be something that I would say if you don't want to sell the whole thing, but you want to sell something that it's a specific profitable and then you're like, well, maybe I grew it. I don't want to deal with that anymore. I just want to focus on, on something else, create different profit centers, split them out. You still own them through a holding company, but then you're not going to be left out without a business if you don't want to exit the whole thing. And what I love about this, you kind of uh, glazed over, but I think it's worth mentioning is when you do sell a whole business, depression often kicks in. <laughs> I think I've got like a hundred percent success rate of anyone I know who sells their business and doesn't have something else to go to having this massive identity crisis and they hate their life and they spend the money on things that they don't even want. And then they're depressed about their purchases. And then they want to get back into business. Like I've got one, a guy sold his business for seven figures and he had to go back to collect some paperwork and his employees were rude to him. 
And he's like, my employees were rude to me. I was like, they're not your employees. Yeah. And he's like, but, 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 but I don't think they like me. I was like, they probably never liked you. And he was like, <laughs> you know, he was like really sad about it. Um, and I was like, but that's the reality. They don't have to be nice to you anymore. You're not their boss. Like go get your paperwork and lots of pleases and thank yous. Um, but this is something that I think business owners don't get. And it's why it's important that the business isn't your identity because realistically, you're probably going to sell it one day or need to sell it one day or wind it down or however you want to do it. And it's better if you don't have that personal connection to it and that you are comfortable saying, okay, you know, this is separate and have that next thing going. I think the one thing I'm really proud about, you know, I own 16 companies um, or co-own some of them. If any of like, I could sell all my companies today and just keep my Dungeons and Dragons shop. And I would still be very busy and I would hang out in my Dungeons and Dragons shop and I would sell Dungeons and Dragons figures and probably work out how to buy other Dungeons and Dragons shops and turn it in some big franchise. I would still be busy. Um, and that's one of the cool things, you know? So, um, so I, I love that you said that, that breaking it down and really think of each of your businesses as a, as a separate thing. So um, one of the things that yeah. I, we get to learn from our coach and mentor, <laughs> so Roland Frazier, I mean, he's amazing. Exactly. And so those are the things that We've been able to learn from him because yeah. it's scary. It's scary to exit your company and get into head into depression because it will happen most likely. Your identity, your identity is going to be tied to that one. So I love it. So, um, so Craig, we're getting towards the end now. What I'd love to hear from both of you guys is what do smart businesses do in your words, and how can people find out more about you? So, Craig. Okay. Well, um, the what smart businesses will do is, like I said. Take their in, in terms of patents specifically, uh, put large things in small packages, and it, because that's more expensive, and you can use the put your IP in a in a holding company, sell it separately from your business. One thing that I wanted to share with you guys that's the super high value thing is that you can license your patent or trademark in well specifically patents in what we call field of use licensing this is the this is going to make a lot of people a lot a lot happier because they don't have to give it all away at once you can take a single patent and sell the rights to you can rent the rights which is called you get a royalty uh, passive income royalty for that and you get that royalty stream and but you can just say you can only do this in this space I'm going to reserve the rights to do it in another space. For example, I did a patent license in a field of use. I do all my patent licenses with field of use licensing where one, one, one side, one party gets uh, the medical to doctors and hospitals and clinics, and the other party gets to sell uh, all the patent rights on the same patent, the same one patent to athletic companies for runners and athletes and license it, sub-license it to Nike and stuff like that. So both can coexist at the same time. Everybody's happy. Everybody gets to maximize the monetization. When you sell your business, you can sell the patents to the new buyer. And if you're going to do something non-competitive that they don't care about, you're selling it to a medical company, for example, or an automotive company, they're just doing B2C, whatever. You can license back a grant back license where you keep the rights to do B2B 
uh, in your niche that doesn't affect them and, and you can still keep the rights. You can slice and dice these things and it's a way of thinking that can maximize your exit value. I love that. And how can people find out more about you? I know you said there's a, a workshop you're offering with my name as a code. That's cool. Yeah. So for this event, um, we are we're going to be doing a series of workshops at invention2exit.com. Invention, the number two, exit.com. And uh, to get you to find out so you don't miss out on any uh, live trainings, uh, just uh, go there, go to invention2exit.com. And uh, for a free ticket at, at a future workshop, just uh, use offer code Adam. You're amazing. Perfect. And Jalita, what do smart businesses do? So smart businesses or smart business creators do is... We need to stop thinking that we have to figure everything out on our own. Oh, I need my money. Or if I, I mean, if I'm going to do a deal, it's got to be my money. If I'm going to do something, I have to know how to do it. And if I have to implement, I have to implement it. Smart businesses and smart business creators leverage. They leverage other people's geniuses. They leverage other people's money. And they leverage other people's know-how systems, tools, and frameworks. That is the only way that you guys are going to be able to scale faster and, and just accelerate anything that you want to do with your business. Leverage money. Leverage other people's money, not your money. Other people's money. Other people's son of geniuses. And then their frameworks so that you guys can just get it in, implement it, and move your company ahead faster. I actually, I actually love that. And I'm, I'm going to... I normally don't do this, but I want to echo something there because you just triggered something that came up in a discussion the other day. When we were buying this $1.2 million business, the financier, um, he came to me and said, okay, so we're going to do this 50-50, right? He's like, we're both putting in 600 grand. I said, no, you're putting in 1.2 million. I'm doing the deal. And he said, well, that's not really fair. I said, okay, let's go the other way. I'll put in 1.2 million and you pull off the deal. And he said, wait, I don't know how to do that. I was like, great, then we're understanding here. <laughs> You're going to put in 1.2 million and I'm going to pull off the deal because me pulling off the deal is worth $600,000. And he went, okay, I see exactly. So I, I want to give you guys that as that negotiation. I make it really simple. If I'm bringing you a deal and I'm asking you for money, I am not going to be bringing half. I'm asking you for 100% of the money because I'm bringing you a deal you wouldn't have thought of, you wouldn't have handled, and I'm taking responsibility for pulling off. If you don't like that, I am so okay with me putting in the money and you do all that stuff after I bring you the deal. But you will be responsible for the money just like I would be if I'm the one pulling it off with your money. And I want to put that in your heads because it really helps people understand what a 50-50 split is. And it's why I say no to a lot of people when they try and give me money. Because I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. But if I bring a deal and I'm like, no, I can pull this off, then that's typically how it's going to go down. So um, with that being said, I want to remind you, um, please check out workingvacation.com if you want to see what it would be like to spend an entire week and borrow my brain and have my brain in your business while we help you be more efficient, have better time management, and literally get more done in a fraction of the time than you think is possible while spending even more time with your loved ones. Go to workingvacation.com. That's it from us here at Smart Businesses. Do this. Thank you. Now, if you're new to the podcast and you want to learn more about how to build a smart business, then the absolute best place to start is with my Smart Blueprint ebook. Over 10,000 people have already gone through the book, and it's one of the most comprehensive resources on strategically building and growing your business that you can find anywhere for free. Just visit thesmartblueprint.com forward slash ebook to grab a free copy. And I'll see you on the next episode of Smart Businesses Do This.